1: Hi, this is your host of the BritFlix.com podcast, Stuart Wright. Welcome to the show. I'm just cutting in to say that this is an interview with Julia DeCorno about her new feature film, Titan. There wasn't time in the press junket to do the formalities. So let's just dive into the interview with Julia. Julia. Hi. Hiya. Welcome to BritFlix.com podcast.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: My pleasure, my pleasure. Um now to turn packs a lot into 108 minutes, uh it's a it's a visceral, sometimes shocking film. But from the headlines I'd got from when it played at Cannes and then when I've got to see it twice now, it's a it's a heartfelt love story that evolves out of it, which wasn't something I imagined when I was going into the film first time round. Um and in and in many senses the the idea of a, a killer in a movie. Sort of being done with killing, as it were, by nominally the first act is a is a big is a big surprise for uh, for me as as a, as a as a horror fan.
0: Yeah, well, yeah. Obviously, um, the first thing is that I want to say that, is that I usually like very much films that you know uh, somehow go from that killed their main character pretty early. That's not what I'm doing. But this is something that I've always very much enjoyed. Obviously, this is the case in Psycho. It's also the case, I think, in um, oh, I know the title only in French, of course, in um, um Police Federal Los Angeles Friedkin movie with William Peterson, um, where the main character, the main cop, is 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 killed like at, after one hour, and it's his um, partner that takes on the story, which was secondary. Character at the beginning, and it's always something that um, that I found like very daring as a gesture for a director, and I've looked up on um, very much, and um, I think it says a lot as well about how or uh, you can renew um, your audience's expectations, sure, but also a point of view and how they can revise their, you know their um, take on the story. Uh, it's very interesting because it makes you active as an audience, you know, it's such a big move that it makes you like very active to stay in the story. And that's something that I think I I, I try to do here as well with the uh, um, uh, arrival of Vincent in the story. When you think that uh, it's going to be on her killing spree all around the film and all of a sudden it's like, it takes a huge step aside and it's not going exactly where you want to go. That's the, the, the idea there is like obviously um it serves the, the 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 my purpose and what I'm saying about humanity, about love, uh about um again expectations and representations and all that. But I think it's also uh, in order to um engage uh the audience into my story very strongly, you know. Uh, and by the way, when you were talking about horror on, um, and killers on the move in horror, let's say that most horror films have been done by men, obviously, and the killer on the move is always an outside threat. It's not like, I mean, always, most of the time, an outside threat. You know, I'm talking uh, Jason, I'm talking Michael Myers and all that, you know. And here, the thing is that my the killer is my main character, so it's really can it can't go on like this at one point because she's not gonna be able to be doing exactly what she's doing for so long. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Like um like Jared, like Jared Johnson's Tony or or um Henry Portrait of a Zero Killer where we're put into the mind.
0: Ah, exactly. I was gonna quote Henry. Henry's a very, very for me, it's a big model for that, really, you know. Uh I I, it's, I really love the way that um basically he um he turns around like upside down. Your moral expectations on the main character because he's this horrible, horrible serial killer, very scary, very um, um, un- unyielding and all that. But compared to his friend Otis and compared to the relationship that Otis has with his sister, which is um, very sick, you know, and all of a sudden you don't have you don't have um, another choice than rooting for Henry just because he looks down on Otis and on the, the, the relationship he has with his sister. You know, so it's crazy how like, your morals jump upside down throughout the whole film.
1: Without a doubt. I, was re- I remember reading about uh, Dennis Rader, who's the born to, born to kill serial killer, mm-hmm. who said, who said um, he was asked, why did you not kill for eight years? He goes, you don't know how hard it is to be a killer when you're married and got kids. And you're sort of thinking, "My God, that's just so normal, and yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, horrendous crimes are being committed. I believe it was a recurring nightmare that was a key inspiration for for the film
0: no this, this is well spread around by the way, but I, that's not accurate it's something that that struck I think a lot of attention when I said that, but you have to understand that like the process of writing is not like a clear one it's really something where you' you're just like um uh, navigating your way through many areas that you want to explore and you're trying to make sense out of that. And I must say that this nightmare is one dot among all the dots that I had to connect. No, that's
1: that's what I was going to ask. I was going to say, as because I'm a writer myself, so I was thinking, what was it about the nightmare that got its hooks into your imagination? And how then did you go about unpacking it to become part of something that is a film?
0: But for me, there are many things. Like, obviously um it triggered in me this uh, the um idea of this pregnancy that goes very very wrong because nightmare is me giving me giving birth to um, um car engine pieces um and that was very traumatizing because you know you're like this in this pure act of of life that is that is very uh, you know that takes a lot from you and all that and the what's coming out is a dead material that is cold, you know, and that just like, and this was very, very scary for me. So it gave me this idea indeed for the, for Alexia's pregnancy, for sure. And to also like um, uh, try to portray a pregnancy that just is not wanted, is not lived in, in happiness or in bliss. and, and, And that is very painful and horrific for the person who lives it, you know. Um, And the second thing is that this nightmare set the tone uh, for the visual aspect of my film with the body and with the body transformation. Uh, It's something that I talked a lot with uh, with my effects supervisor in order to give him references and also to my proper master um, as far as the fluids are concerned. Over
1: the, over the film, I was interested. I mean, your choice of music is is really powerful. It's it, it sort of, and it, you've I've heard you talk about shedding skin, movement, and transformation as being part of the story. And obviously, we have talked about the idea of shifting gears from this is about a killer to no, this is about a, a grieving father. In a way, I could, when I rewatched the when I rewatched your film, I've been seeing it. I saw it, what you know saw it on the big screen the first time, and then I got to watch it. At home uh, for a second time, it's like six dances. Your, your film break, your, the transformation breaks down to six dances. We have obviously doing it to death, which is who she's not.
0: Come,
1: we have now. Uh, I can. Is it and Men ne
0: menotu,
1: which is like the irresistible compulsion to kill uh, that turns into almost like a kind of. It is like a dance because it's almost like a murder farce in in, yeah. in, in, a, in a mad way. She's not there, which is the revelation of sort of Vincent's sort of, uh, what you call it, uh, his need for love and his existential crisis really comes to the fore then because before that moment, he's a he seems to be this mysterious, enigmatic, powerful man with all these young men looking to him. She's
0: not there.
1: Lighthouse is almost like a gender flip of the, the opening scene because we're objectifying yeah. the men. And then Crap On My Mind. Which, and it's interesting. it's a phrase I'd only read recently looking into sexism, which is the idea of women being accepted into men's spaces. And it felt like that moment with that heavy music and the men, like almost like a mosh pit. The, yeah,
0: yeah, it is. The,
1: it's like she's been she's been accepted into their space and then
0: Well she's trying to blend as hell, that's for sure.
1: And then by the final moment we go we get to the sultry version of Wayfaring Stranger by Lisa Abbott I'm
0: just a poor wayfaring
1: and Stranger. And we get this feminine version of her. We get the return to this feminine version of her. Does that sound like that does that does that sound like I've kind of identified the kind of pattern in the film in any way? I mean, it's just my observation of it.
0: But it's a very, very accurate observation because that's exactly what I intended. For me, the, the, the songs I chose when I was still writing, and I chose them carefully, obviously, like first because of their mood, but also uh, because of the lyrics. And the lyrics to me were every time, it's like they were another narrator somehow. Because, you know, when you know your film, it's not going to be very chatty. That um, the, the mu- music and dancing are very, very big tools, you know, in order to bring up the stakes, you know, and the evolution of the characters, um, and that's why this, the, yeah, these songs were absolutely important, and, and they were written in the script, and so by the end, you know, you know, usually when you write songs in the script, production uh, tend to believe that it's just a whim and it's just like to set the tone for the readers or whatever, mm. and then. My musical supervisor comes to me and says, okay, what do we do with the songs? And like, well, these are the songs. Uh, this is the songs that I want. And he says, but, but there are a lot. I'm like, yeah, but they, corresponds to, they all correspond to a very specific scene, a specific moment that is pivotal in the film, and I really need them for, to express that. And he goes like, but you need like one minute or something. I go, no, I want the full songs. And then he goes white. And he sweat and I thought he was going to faint. And he was like, but Julia, I mean, how am I going to do that? They're only hits. I'm like, I don't know, man, I need this. <laughs> <laughs> and he did a brilliant job because I got all of them. But I think that he lost at least five years of his life doing that.
1: I imagine. I, imagine. I mean, I'm a big fan of, um, of 16 horsepower.
0: Me too. Have you, have you
1: heard their um, Leroux parasol, the, uh, the French waltz? They do. They do what? They do a French waltz called La Robe à Parasol, where they sing in French. It's amazing.
0: Oh, no, I don't know
1: that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Check out the album Folklore. Okay,
0: I'll
1: check. Out of interest, I mean, just as we're on music, are you a fan of, or do you know the band Godflesh at all from, from Britain, a kind of noisy industrial band? A fan of who? Godflesh.
0: Godflesh? Yeah. I don't know it.
1: The reason I ask is... The tattoo that Alexis got is Love is a Dog from Hell, which I presume is a reference to Bukowski's poetry.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: There's a song by Godflesh called Love is a Dog from Hell as well. And it's got very few lyrics in it, but it could be described in your film, which is kind of freaky. It's a waste, waste away, heart slave slain, edge of despair, head fucked forever. The master of deception, rotten soul. That's the only lyrics in the song, and I was thinking that could be a description of her. Mm-hmm. Yet, yeah, obviously, it's not. You didn't. You weren't making just a mad connection I made when I was when I was thinking about it.
0: I love that. I love the idea that you know uh, artists can communicate. You know, from one period to another, or you know, it's like there, sometimes there is telepathy. I mean, no one owns an idea. It's always like just the dialogue of what you've seen, what you've heard, and all that, and. And I love that. I love when this happens—kind of serendipity.
1: <laughs> now, obviously, by what we established with Alexia, we can't really be morally on her side. But when she goes through the physical transformation in the public toilet, we can't help but feel for her because you make us feel the film. And I think from the very oh, from the first time earlier in the film, where you where she puts her knitting needle in her teeth, and we hear teeth on metal, it's almost like you've you've brought the film almost yeah. like into our lap so can you can you talk us through design you know the sort of what the thoughts that the thoughts and design that goes into that sequence where she's rearranging her face for want of a better expression
0: I mean that it's the worst sequence of the film for them to watch and I think it's very interesting because
1: second time round i I was like this and because I knew it was coming,
0: yeah, but the funny part is that it's 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 it's, it's it, it you don't see anything there is nothing to be seen, and that's what I wanted you know it's always like I personally always draw um, an inner compass uh, between what I want to show and what I don't want to show. And the, 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 the limit for that is gratuity. I don't want things to be gratuitous. So I show what I believe is on my character's POV and it's going to make you feel what they feel and make you be in their shoes. But if I feel that something is going to be overindulging on my side, that I feel that I'm going to have a little bit too much fun, fun and enjoyment that doesn't serve the story and serve only myself, I don't do it. And, and I have these thoughts, but I just ban them from my, from my um, breakdown. And so um, the, with this particular scene, I mean, this scene is actually just me making you anticipating the worst.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: But you don't see anything. All you you do is hear, believing that you see something, but that you don't because there is no bone, there is no torn flesh, there is no blood, there is nothing. You just think that you're going to see the worst thing ever.
1: It's like, what do you call it? It's like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the original, where everyone believes they've seen the most goriest film in their life, and yet there's barely a drop of blood on screen.
0: Absolutely. Exactly. The
1: power of cinema.
0: Yeah, it's only (laughs) mise-en-scene. And uh, I really like that because it means that I I have done my job right here, you know, because everyone thinks that they've seen something horrible when they actually haven't seen anything. I think that's very interesting.
1: What stage in the writing process does does Wayfaring Stranger, a 19th century American folk song, get into your mind so much that it bookends the film with two different versions?
0: Well, there are many reasons. Um, Well, the first is that this specific song, which is a, as you know, a standard in folk in history. I could have taken any other uh, interpretation if it were just for the lyrics, because lyrics are important. For me, they enhance the fact that she's um, very much not connected to her family. She doesn't have ties, you know. She's like alone. She's not connected to the family or to the, the world around her. She's already alone in her head. So I think she feels like a stranger in her own home. Um, so that's, that, that's why I chose this specific song, but the version by 16 horsepower
1: I'm just a boy, fair and stranger, traveling
0: through. is one because uh, I love 16 horsepower and two, uh, because, you know, um, there is a metallic, um, quality to any 16 horsepower song uh, there, I think he sings into something. I think Maybe like um, a metallic um, glass or something. There he sings into something, and his voice sounds very metallic. And obviously, I've been looking for metal in the sound everywhere in my film. Uh, I did a lot of bells in the score and all that. And I think that this version is there is something that is almost post-industrial in it. I
1: think it's the, it's that classic, um, you know, the open the old rock and roll type microphone, which was the early amplification. I think that's the style. That he uses.
0: I think it's quite dirtier than that.
1: But as in, as in, as in, it's vintage, as in, because it's vintage now, it has a yeah. sound that's purely, you know, weirdly organic and metallic at the same time.
0: Yeah, it's possible, you're right. But then, yeah, that's the reason why I, I chose it because of that, you know, because it's, it's a little bit, it's a little bit metallic, a little bit dirty, and it, it looked good with these images of pipes and all that engines and stuff.
1: Right. Well, One last question: uh, Agat and, and Vincent completely give themselves to the to the film, um, and, and obviously they go. To the, they the, you know they obviously trust you a great deal. What are the conversations like around the screenplay when they're obviously reading what they've got to do, and you discussing how you want to do it, and how do you how do you build that trust that it's gonna it's gonna look amazing, it's gonna make the film brilliant? When obviously in isolation, they're quite absurd. Some of the some of the things you're expecting people to do.
0: Well, the thing is that for me, because my films are very hard to shoot and because um, personally on set, I don't show any images to anyone. Um, I don't even watch the images. I don't watch the rushes and no one, I mean, I don't do replays or playbacks um, on set. So no one, um, once it's shot, it's shot. You know, it's, it's all in every time. And so because of this, for me, I, I think that my role is to, as you say, uh, have my um, actors trust, but also to bring them as much safety as as they need. Um, they need to be safe. They need to feel safe. They need to feel where they're going and that they're going somewhere. So, for that reason, we talked uh, ahead in pre-production. We talked a lot, not about just the script and you know what it means or whatever and what characters does, but really. Um, about how things are going to be made. And uh, because usually, I mean, again, they they are very physical shootings, you know, so I don't want them to be like completely um, overwhelmed uh, when they enter the shooting because it's like, it's a lot, you know, Uh, it's very physical. There are fights, dancing, blah, blah, blah. And there is not one day like fire. There is not one day without Mm. something. And the second thing is that I tell them very precisely what I'm going to shoot as far as their bodies are concerned even if they don't watch images, I tell them exactly what the shot is going to be. I tell them what I shoot from their body. And if they're not comfortable with me shooting a part of their body, I don't shoot it. I have smaller crews for nudity, although um, my my crew is mostly female. So it's kind of, it feels a little bit uh, safer for my actress, uh, but still smaller crew uh, for nudity. And um, yeah, and again, like they have like, very um they don't have really the keys of my universe which is good because it means that they have to trust me no matter what and they can because again like every time I'm like super I'm it's not like you know I don't I'm not maternal or anything it's just I tell them factually what we're doing you know and and I sometimes i don't like to psychologize things on set for me these things has have been done before when we're in pre-production we psychologize things and stuff but on set it's really all about the bodies so for me their bodies are, really have to feel safe you know in order to be able to give what they have to give
1: brilliant well look it just gives me to say thank you very much for giving your time on the britflix podcast
0: thank you very much that's very interesting